0: So we open our practice of mindfulness and loving-kindness to the full range of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of our lives. And uh, with, with uh, Sylvia's beautiful introduction of the joys, of the benefits, of the, of the strengths of the practice, guess what you're going to get tonight? <laughs> So, as we turn this practice of kindness and awareness to the difficulties in our life, what is said to automatically arise in our hearts is compassion. Is the, the, the visual image is the quivering of the heart. that we're invited not to just allow into our awareness those pleasant experiences, those fulfilling experiences, that even though we would like our lives to be what would be called successful or, or pleasant, happy, but really the full range includes the joys and the sorrows and everything that's in between. And this unfolding of both awareness and kindness is um, uh, the image that is often uh, uh, we're invited to. Is this this great bird that supports our practice? That the bird of our practice flies on two wings: both wisdom, the practice of our insight, and compassion, the practice of our loving kindness. And that the ground in which we walk, the ground of compassion, the ground of our loving-kindness as well, begins with ourselves. How can we truly be with others? How can we truly attend to others and offer our kindness to others if our own hearts are not filled? When we're not taking of our care of ourselves, how can we explore the experience of caring for others? When we are, or experience that um, uh, that judgment, that that irritation that we offer ourselves, can we not judge the judgment? This is the invitations, Even in the the um, uh, sitting instructions that we offer. Just noticing where the mind has gone, if it's, if it's not on the breath or the body or the phrases anymore. And not needing to judge where, where wherever you are in your practice or experience. And even if the judgment were to arise, can we be kind to the judgment itself? Can we not judge the judgment? We have so many places to practice this in our lives. So I have my own airport story and um, it's a little bit different than Sylvia's because whenever I fly to IMS to teach, whenever I fly to Logan Airport, I manage to hurt myself. And so two years ago when I flew in, I You know how when you're walking, you're not walking mindfully, you know, in the slow, steady pace. You're walking at a clip in order to get somewhere. And I walked right into a glass wall. And it was physically painful, but internally, (laughs) the judgment that arose in that moment was you know, stunning, because everybody else saw the glass wall. <laughs> so that's, that's part one. Part two is this year, like three weeks ago, I flew in for um, a retreat at IMS, and as I was... was, was um, wheeling my luggage to the car that was going to drive me to Barry, there are these grooves in the sidewalk and the wheels caught on the groove and this large suitcase began to tip over and I flipped right (laughs) over the the suitcase in front of all these people that are standing there. And again, this judgment comes up of (laughs) how unmindful that I am and you know, how I don't deserve to be you know, going to IMS to offer this practice. And, the, and what was so interesting even last night is the judgment coming up of Sylvia has these great stories in the airport. Why can't my stories be like those? <laughs> it's, it's such a place to practice that that, that these messages, the self-talk, which is what thoughts are sometimes described by Western psychologists, how, how automatic the conditioning is. And can we just notice it with kindness? And a little bit of humor helps. Just watching it come and pass. some of these, some of these um, thoughts are driven by common energies that many of you, because many of you have been to these retreats before. But it's worth mentioning um, uh, again to remember that some of these thoughts are driven by these energies that are so common in our practice called hindrances. And we can personalize it and again Feel that we're not doing it right, or that we're um, that something is 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 not working, or we're not getting it. Everybody else can do it, and these energies can hi- sometimes. And they're called hindrances because they can hinder our clarity. They can. Um, it feels as if they're barriers to our ability to be present in our hearts and in the present moment. Really just to notice the arising of these energies too. That there are five of them. There is this, this aspect and the, the first four are paired very closely. That sense-desire, that, that wanting, the attachment can pull us away from, from being present in our hearts. But the opposite, the flip co- the side of the same coin, is the pushing away. Not wanting, the aversion. And then there's the more energetic qualities of the drowsiness and sleepiness that I know that none of you are experiencing. And the flip side to that, which is the restlessness, the agitation that can manifest in the body, as the body not being able to be still or or um, uh, quiet, or it could manifest in the restlessness and the anxiety in the mind. And sometimes they're very related. And the last one, um, is an energy of, of, its, of its own, uh, and it's around doubt, it's around skeptical doubt. Why am I here? What am I doing? And so really the invitation of all of these energies as they arise as events in our practice is simply to be aware with them without needing them to be different, without pushing them away because we don't like them, or, in the case of sense desire and, and, and coming into contact with pleasantness, wanting more. Like, you know, a particularly calm or, or connected sitting with, with your heart energies. And then the idea arises, this is the point of practice. This is, you know, what I'm looking for. And trying to replicate that when we know Every sitting is different. So really, as these energies come into your practice, just noticing without needing to interpret, and not needing to judge. And that in itself, that meeting the moment for what it is, is the practice of loving-kindness, is the practice of, of allowing things be as they are, allowing your practice to be as it is. Because once we get caught in the energy, once we begin to believe the object of my attachment will bring me happiness, or that if I believe the satisfaction of my aversion will create peace, we start to get caught in that loop. So there are you know, there's been a lot written about the the experience you are experiencing now, because mindfulness is is all over the place. It's in our it's in our world. It's and so journalists are writing about this ex, this this ineffable experience that you are are having. And so um, this is a passage from an article. That is called, The Misery Called Meditation. Written by a professor at Columbia Law School. Day one. I realized I made a terrible mistake. After my initial curiosity wore off, I began, in the parlance, to notice something. I was miserable. Sitting silently on the cushion for hours at a time turns out to be intensely boring. Worse, it can be physically painful. You could sit there cross-legged, kneel, and even sit on a chair, but it didn't really matter, because after a while, the same nauseating pain would creep into my right shoulder and scream into my ears. I was bored, aching, and because the whole silent thing lacked anyone to complain to, and I'd come to the wrong place. This is what we call a multiple hindrance attack. When one hindrance feeds on another, when the aversion feeds into the attachment to wanting things to be different and the restlessness comes, you can feel that we get caught. And really the antidote to that spin cycle is really just to be present. And we'll talk about these these hindrances a little bit more as the retreat unfolds um, uh, because they are, they are just energies that come and go. They're uh, what Utejaniya um, uh, might describe as our friends in our practice. I do want to talk a little bit about doubt because doubts can seem conceptual, it can seem like a thought. But thoughts have energy, too. And so, really to look, to feel, what is, what is, how do you feel doubt in the body? Because as soon as you begin to feel the experience, you drop a little bit of distance between yourself and the content of the doubt. one of the, one of the um, techniques that I use for doubt, is not to make it go away, but to change the trajectory of it. You know, I, I doubt my abilities, I, I doubt the practice. Why don't I doubt the doubt? Why don't I ask the question, do I really believe this? Like when I was tripping over the, the um, suitcase, and judging myself in all these expletives, did I really believe that? Or was that just an unconscious reaction on my part? Faith often is a really good support when we're feeling this, this... You know, doubt can be a constructive curiosity, a questioning. But the doubt, the skeptical doubt that we're talking about, actually deconstructs. It actually pulls away the foundation. And so one of the supports is our practice of faith. This energy of this spiritual faculty of faith that, that is not just about what we're told. It's not about what you've read. It's really about what have you experienced? over and over again, that's touched your heart and led towards more freedom in your life. Because that is worth believing in, not something that comes and goes in our minds. And if you don't have that faith in your own experience, it is really worth a reflection of, of just noticing the energy of faith over billions of practitioners over these two-and-a-half thousand years that have actually brought this practice to where we are today. Through their generosity, through the teachings, through passing the teachings on from generation to generation. It's part of what the Buddha might have invited us to, to reflect on the Dharma, to reflect on the power of the Dharma. And that can brighten the mind a bit out of when we get stuck in these, um, in, in these spin cycles. Lastly, about the energies of doubt, I spend a lot of, I I spent a lot more time these days with, with young ones because I have three grandkids, um, one, four, and five. And, um, and so I, we were, at a restaurant in Petaluma the other day, and um, you know, what I noticed about uh, the tolerance of Jane and Oliver in particular, and and Lulu, who's the tiny one, um, is that when the noise started building up in the restaurant, they became noisier. And and the baby became more agitated. So, the louder the sounds, rose in, in the restaurant, the more that, they, that Lulu began to feel uncomfortable and cry and sort of try to, I, I don't know, maybe she was just trying to cry out against the, the sounds that were coming in. Meanwhile, the adults were really nonplussed, right? The noise was not really bothering the conversation, bothering the childcare, everything was going on. Because the noise was just in the background. And that's what the energies of these hindrances can be too. They can just be there without needing to have that um, immediate urgent reactivity to it that the that the kids have. But that you know, we have this dimensionality in our awareness that, that think we can just allow things to just shift to the background and pull the practice of whether it's the phrases or the the, um, awareness practice into the foreground. In the Brahma-viharas, these energies of the heart of loving-kindness, compassion, uh, shared its sympathetic joy and equanimity. Um, there are what is traditionally described as near and far enemies. Um, I don't particularly like the word enemies and I was thinking about this because uh, Sylvia brought it up. Um, I don't like the word, I use the word opposites, near and far opposites, because as a, um, I think as a man the word enemy lands differently. And as a gay man there are, I've had in my life, people declare themselves as my enemies when I had no, you know, stance towards them. And so I have a little, uh, my own preference around these words. And so really, I invite you to feel your way into how to hold these teachings for yourselves. So in the, in the classic descriptions there are these near and far opposites of these heart energies. The near opposite um, being things that look like but sometimes masquerade as these primal energies of the heart of loving-kindness and compassion but are not exactly the, the qualities of, of, um, of that heart energy. So for example loving-kindness the near opposite of metta is the conditional love, is the the love that has an attachment to it. The the love, the kindness that says, um, if you act a certain way, I'll be your friend. Or, um, if you do this, I will be able to love you. So, the, the attributes of of loving kindness sometimes can can look like you know that intention of the attached love because it's still it can still be um, wanting wanting for someone's well-being but there's a condition there's an attachment to it there's an attachment to an outcome of the relationship and we all know, all of us who have been in relationships, whether it's with your family or your primary partners, is that all relationships have the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. There are no relationships that are only the pleasant experiences. And so how do you offer kindness in that relationship? You have to. When I When I say that I love Stephen, I cannot say that I just love how he takes care of me. I have to also acknowledge and love all those things that he does to irritate the hell out of me. Including, you know, the things that he doesn't pick up in the house and, you know, all those daily things that you manage to overlook. But that are part of our experience in developing an unconditional regard for someone. Our relationships are such perfect mirrors of our own experience. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And so the far opposite of loving-kindness is is that extreme aversion that, that also can be called hatred. Aversion is um, this autonomic pushing away of experience because we don't like it. We find it to be unpleasant. And, and really, hatred is that striking out at that unpleasantness. Sometimes, um, sometimes anger is put into this description of the far opposite. And I actually work with that a little bit. I'm not sure that I personally put anger into these categories of experience because I often find that w- there is wisdom in anger. There, is, there can be um, wisdom in exploring where have bit my boundaries been crossed? Or where has something been... Um, transgressed or, or, or done in terms of injury. And so anger sometimes is a, is, a, is a flag for me. Do I act on it? Do I not? But it's a point of awareness. It perhaps is, it goes into the aversion and hatred if I'm not aware of it. Because our social conditioning is really to meet energy with energy, is to meet hatred with hatred, to aversion with aversion. You know that whole phrase "an eye for an eye," that comes from uh, from the uh, stele of Hammurabi. That's over four thousand years old, and it's just you know conditioned on a on a cultural level. AOL uh, a couple of years ago did a did a study on um, this aspect of meeting energy for energy what we would call revenge and they asked you know um, would are you a person that would um, engage in revenge if you were hurt or if if something happened to you um, uh, an injury like that and I won't give you all the details, but 82% of the people that replied um, said that under certain conditions, yes, they would engage in that. And so it's, it's really when we do this practice, when we incline the hearts, whether we can actually do it in the moment or not, when we are inclining the hearts and minds in the direction of kindness and compassion. We are going upstream. I love this phrase by um, Mary Malou, who writes, the only person, the only people with whom you should try to get even with are those who have helped you. (laughs) It's a beautiful turn. So the you know those near and far opposites of compassion. As kindness turns towards difficulty in our life, the near opposite of compassion is something that we call might call pity. That that experience that is a little bit distant. We're not we're not actually empathizing with with that person who is. Um, in difficulty. The the feeling can be, I'm really glad I'm not going through what you're going through. You know, there's a subtle experience that that can be of of superiority. Another energy that that I think is very close to compassion but is not exactly um, this unconditional energy of the heart is what has been called codependence. You know, the 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 urge to fix, the urge to get involved and as you know, I was trained as a social worker, so I've had this experience that our job was to problem solve, it was to be of service to people and sometimes in the urgency to fix, I would actually make things worse. And it's because we don't, I didn't have that ability to pause, to really look at what is going on, what is true. So compassion actually has that component of wisdom, of insight. What needs to be, what action needs to be taken? the far opposite of compassion is something that might be a no-brainer. It is called cruelty. And I don't think that anybody in this room has that attribute, but I use that attribute in my own practice. um, Because if, if hatred is wishing suffering onto someone, cruelty is the enjoyment of seeing that person suffer. And so when I get close to hating an experience or a person, I'm getting closer to that far opposite of cruelty and how and so it just it just recalibrates. It wakes me up. Like that is not where I want to be. And I begin to look at what is this strong aversion that I have. So in in a sense, the far opposite of compassion serves as a wake-up call for all of us. The word compassion comes from these two Latin roots, com and pati, to, to be able to suffer with. So it's a relational experience. Just like uh, Sylvia used the word console, it actually comes from it f- from the same root that it, the, c- the word console comes from uh, con and soul. Soul meaning to soothe together. So it is a relational, communal practice. It's one of the reasons why we have the groups to start this retreat. That we can actually hold our experience together, even in the silence, you know, in this larger room. But in the group meetings, we can, we can hold, witness, and honor all of our experiences. And because it is a communal experience for all of us, um, it really includes us. We are invited to include ourselves, not to be alone in our suffering, to be intimate, to, to really come close to the difficulties that arise, to give ourselves the care Thich Han writes, since I was a young man, I've tried to understand the nature of compassion, but what little compassion I've learned has not come from intellectual investigation, but my actual experience of suffering. As he turns towards that experience with his practice, that's where the insight of compassion arises. One of the takeaways that I got from Sylvia's talk last night was this recognition of goodness in our lives, of goodwill, of the strengths of, of, of the kindness that is already in our lives. And that is the definition of the proximate cause of loving-kindness. The, 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 the moment before loving-kindness, the proximate cause, is uh, recognizing the goodness. In yourself or others. So, in parallel, the proximate cause of compassion arising, the moment before compassion arises, is being able to be aware to see the impact of suffering, of difficulty. And this is such a poignant place because What it indicates to me is that as we turn kindness towards the first noble truth, towards the difficulty in our lives, and when compassion arises, it means that in our world compassion would not exist without the first noble truth. That the wings of the practice, the wisdom and compassion are that close. We have this word, bittersweet. This is where our life becomes bittersweet. That if we didn't have suffering, we wouldn't have this ability of the heart to meet it. Really, the invitation is to be compassionate to where we are, where in our practice we are. It may not be easy, and the process is this intention, this intentional process towards tenderness. I lo- I I love the word tenderness these days because, um, like the word intention, it the the root of it is to stretch. We were talking in the um, uh, at one of the meals around the um, the tennis tournaments in Wimbledon. Tennis also has that root to stretch. It's a physical stretch of our hearts to include the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, the the range of our life. What Sharon Salzberg calls a heart as wide as the world. This ability to stretch really requires the resiliency and the strength of our hearts. Courage, which can be called right effort, wise effort. and a, a fearlessness that goes beyond our zones of safety. It's not just, it's about stretching beyond, not, not to a breaking point, but to exercise that muscle in our hearts. So when we go to the gym, we don't exercise to hurt ourselves. We exercise enough to stretch that that capacity, and this is what we're doing when we're when we're practicing here, and really to remember, even in the silence, we are not walking this path alone. My um, my father passed in two thousand ten, and um, he had a three or four year illness and um, he bounced back and went down again and um, he was ready to to go and um, and my mom was 92 at the time and she, she was his primary caregiver and so and and being an elderly Asian couple they it was very difficult for them to accept help you know in terms of social services and so so I tried to be there as much as I could for them, and and it was overwhelming me. So I could imagine what her experience was, being that close to him as he was trying to let go, and let go. And, and I found myself leaning on Stephen, whose parents had died not too far in the past, and also uh the my friends who have had lost a parent or so and i found that the support that i got from a community from from individuals both individuals and a community was so worthwhile because i could be that much more present with my own parents my own familial place and and so i had this image that as you know, the loving-kindness practices get gets offered to us, it gets offered to us in widening circles, the ripples that move into the world. And the energy of compassion radiates back inward to those who actually are standing in the fire of the first noble truth. And that as I went through that experience feeling that support radiating inwards to my own experience to my mom's and my father's. Now I have at least 3 or 4 people in my life who are encountering the same issues around around passing around illness that I can I can be that support of radiating that en- energy to where they are standing in their sometimes um, inability to hold how much suffering there is. This is so important to remember in our collective experience with what's happening in the world. We are only separated by six degrees, it says. And so we hold this practice and all of our lives together as we turn our collective attention, our collective caring to all those places in the world that suffer so greatly. whether it's Afghanistan, or Iraq, or Syria, or Ferguson, or Charleston, or the violence in our own cultures and schools, even if we think we can't do anything about it, our compassion practice allows us to stand in the fire of our lives. As it radiates inward, it allows people to stand in their fire. And even if you think the compassion practice doesn't do anything, isn't doing anything, it does make the difference that it prevents us from being indifferent. And that indifference is the near opposite of equanimity. So in that experience of compassion, dissolving indifference is wisdom. This was written almost ten years ago, um, by Abraham Verghese. He's um, he's now a professor of medicine at Stanford. Um, he's beyond being a um, a brilliant physician. He's also a really prolific and an incredible writer. Um, and so he wrote about his um, his growing up as an East Indian in Ethiopia and. Then he wrote about his experiences in rural Tennessee and uh, during the height of the AIDS crisis. But this piece uh, was in the New York Times and um, it described his experience with Katrina um, when he was in San Antonio. With the first busloads of Katrina refugees about to arrive in San Antonio, the call went out for physician volunteers and I signed up for the 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. shift. On the way, riding down dark and deserted streets, I thought of driving in for night shifts at the ICU as an intern many years ago and how I would try to steal myself as if putting on armor. My first patient sat before me haggard pointing to what ailed her as if speech no longer served her. An antibiotic, a pair of slip-ons with a room full of donated clothing and a night with her feet elevated, that might help. Hesitantly, I asked each patient, where did you spend the last five days? I wanted to reconcile the person in front of me with the terrible scenes on the television. But as the night wore on, I understood they needed me to ask. Not to ask was not to honor their ordeal. Near the end of my shift, a new group of patients arrived. A man in his seventies with gray hair and beard came in looking fit and vigorous. One eye was milky white and sightless, but the glint in his good eye was good enough for two. His worldly belongings were in a garbage bag, but his manner was dignified. He told me that for two nights after the floods, he had perched on a ledge so narrow that his legs dangled in the water. At one point he said, he saw Air Force One fly over and his hopes soared. I waited and I waited, but no help came. Finally, a boat got him on a packed bridge. There again, he waited. He shook his head in disbelief. Doc, they treated refugees in other companies better than they treated us. I said, I'm so sorry so sorry. He looked at me with a long hard gaze, cocking his head as if weighing my words, which sounded so weak and so inadequate. He rose holding out his hand, his posture firm as he shouldered his garbage bag. Thank you, doc. That's what I needed to hear. All they got to say is sorry. That's all they got to say. Driving home, I remembered my own metaphor of strapping on armor for the night shift. The years have shown me there is no armor. There never was. The willingness to be wounded may be all we have to offer. The willingness To be in the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, that's what connects our humanity together. Rebecca Solnit, who is a San Francisco-based writer, wrote about both natural and man-made tragedies and disasters, but she didn't write about how horrible or destructive or painful they were. I mean, she acknowledged that. But she actually wrote about the brilliance, the goodness, the sense of community, the love that emerged from these events, whether it was around the San Francisco earthquake, the 1985 Mexico City earthquake, 9-11, Katrina. I also remember, you know, many images from, from those things. And one of those images is that people are running towards the center of the, of the suffering as opposed to away from it. That's, that's the energy of the heart. That is the collective experience. It's more than just showing what's possible. It is also showing to us what's latent in our Capacity to be human I read this at the last p o c retreat here last week actually because it really it really um, both touches my heart and practice it makes it 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 shows how complex and and um uh, how complex both this practice and life is. Barry Lopez, an environmental writer. No culture has yet solved the dilemma each has faced with a growth of a conscious mind. How to live a moral, compassionate existence when one is fully aware of the blood, the horror inherent in all life. When one finds darkness, not only when one's own culture but within oneself. If there's a stage at which an individual life becomes truly adult, it must be when one grasps the irony of this unfolding and accepts responsibility for a life lived in the midst of such paradox. One must live in the middle of contradiction, because if all contradictions were eliminated at once, life would collapse. There are simply no answers to some of the great pressing questions. And yet, we continue to live them out, making our lives a worthy expression of leaning into the light. Even in the difficulty of the practice, we are invited to practice on the practice to be kind to the kindness practice itself again not to judge anything about your experience so i have these when 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 the practice seems far away to me these phrases remind What is really important in the practice? Is it a a certain outcome? Is it a certain destination that I'm expecting to get to? But these phrases remind me, may I hold this experience with kindness and compassion. And if I can't be compassionate in this moment, can I be kind? If I can't be kind, can I be non-judgmental? If I cannot be non-judgmental, can I not cause harm? And if I cannot not cause harm, can I cause the least harm possible? So even in my imperfections, even in my failures, the practice is still inclining the heart in the direction of freedom. And that's the best that I can do. Really, that's the best. When we're doing our best, there's nothing else to do. And to also, really, we talked about this in one of our groups, really to be aware that when we're not feeling compassionate or kind, when the awareness is there that we are not feeling, that's the beginning of the practice. That is such a beautiful place to be. Because at that point, we have a choice what is going to lead to more suffering and what is going to lead to less? If we didn't know we were being unkind or if we didn't know we were uh, not compassionate, we would just be replaying our behaviors over and over again. This is really the power of our awareness practice that, that we can't change anything we're not aware of So it empowers us so much. Life is really, can be really hard. That's the first noble truth. But that doesn't mean that our hearts have to be as hard. We don't need to become the hardness. I came out to my parents about 25 years ago, 28 years ago now. And, um, you know, my family dynamics being sort of traditionally Asian uh, were great for denial. And um, so we didn't talk about it for a long time. And and the only thing that that my mom expressed to me at the time because of her conditioning and her, uh, or maybe, yeah, it was her conditioning of not having... All the information. She she just assumed that I would die from AIDS. You know that was the that was the equation at the time. And um, so, I, if she thought I was going to die, I don't know why she didn't speak to me for a while. But um, <laughs> and you know over time she got that education. And you know when Stephen came into my life, um, she was also. Really ambivalent about that relationship, and um, uh, over ten years, he's really sort of integrated into the family, and he was actually present when my father passed, and and because we're as a family on the non-verbal side, mm-hmm. um, he was the one that actually verbalized he's gone, and so. For him to contribute that intimate moment w- in our family was really such a gift, and um, so the same year that my father died, um, uh, there were, you know, the the whole issue of bullying was very present in the media. There was a fifteen-year-old young boy who hung himself in Indiana, and. Um, Tyler Clemente, the Rutgers student, had jumped off the the George Washington Bridge that that year. And so there was a lot of media coverage about it. And um, I was watching the news with my mom one day, and uh, that was on. And she turned to me, and she asked me this question she had never asked before. She asked, have you ever been bullied? And... It stopped me in my tracks because, and I didn't need to know why, but her attention was turning towards the suffering. And I could feel it. And it was new for me because I had never experienced that in this way from her. And I didn't know what to do. It, It was, it was, and so I could feel my mind, you know beginning to distract me from what was arising, which was her heart. And so I had to remind myself to come back to my heart. And so I, you know, this conversation lasted five minutes, really. And so I was able to share a few things and and her response was, why didn't you tell us? We would have done something. And that, I can, I, you know, it's, it's, you can't describe the direct experience. But that, those five minutes, ten minutes of conversation shifted fifty years. It's never too late to be compassionate. It is never too late to feel that compassion, feel that healing. It is never too late to pay attention. That's the transformative experience. And I don't think that she knows this, but that interaction just allowed me to relax a little bit more into who I am. Not needing Anything to be different. And the more that we can meet ourselves with that kindness, we can meet others. The more we are met in the world with that kindness, the more we can also meet the, ki- the experience of others with kindness. You know, this, this work, this personal work that we do to change our lives. We can do it because we can't stand ourselves. We can't, you know, we, uh, we hate how we look or we act or, you know, our personality or, or whatever those characteristics are. Or we can be motivated to transform our lives because out of adversity, We have created something so beautiful, so amazing. This life of the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows that we can experience in such technicolor. These are two different experiences. And likewise, we can expand that intention of transformation when, when we see so much suffering in the world, and I know that some of you are active in that, in terms of whether it's social activism or justice. On a collective level, that same dynamic happens. We can change the world because we cannot stand the injustice. We cannot, we hate how unfair life is or we can change the world because we love it so dearly. That, that, that these experiences that we have, this bitter sweetness between compassion and suffering, is something that, that allows the heart to open. Again, these are two experiences different experiences, working to change the world because we hate it, or working to change the world because we love it? Which path is the path to freedom? Or really, which path is the path that's already free? And this practice starts as this personal internal practice, but it has impact across our world that what you're doing here is so important and so needed for 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 our culture, our world and Of course, there is the first noble truth of pain that is can be too overwhelming for any individual mind and heart to bear. And that is why what you're doing, raising your consciousness, your collective consciousness, is so important. Because the larger our community consciousness manifests, the more that we can turn the collective compassion and awareness towards these events that no individual can bear themselves. But we bear it together. So as a closing, what I'd like to do is to invite a collective practice. So, just to sit for a moment. And then in this space that we've created for all of us, that includes all of our extended families and friends and loved ones, whoever you would like to bring into this circle, whoever you would like to bring in with your care, your kindness, if they are in a life situation that um, can be supported with your compassion, just to call out their names and have their experience be held by the whole community. So oh, one last invitation, again, in the relational aspect of this practice of compassion, we have an altar to Quan Yin and back. And so if you wanted to continue this practice of bringing the energy or the presence of a loved one or a dear friend or someone who needs the attention of your kindness or compassion or awareness, you're more than welcome to put, you know, an acknowledgement of them or who they are on the back altar. Allowing that to um, both support your experience this week, but also to have this week support their experience. And the reminder, of course, is if you leave objects on the altar to remember to take them back to remove them at the end of the retreat. Thank you so much for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit slash donate.